Good morning. Looking forward to sharing the message with you this morning. We're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verse 4. Very difficult passage to, to read and to interpret. Uh, last week, I intentionally avoided the passage so that we could focus this morning on a passage of Scripture. I believe that by looking into it, uh, we'll discover some beautiful things by digging a little deeper. Uh, when you read the passage at the surface level, it seems to suggest that we as Christian people should distance ourselves from the world and disengage and cloister ourselves in sort of a Christian religious bubble with people who look like us, think like us, vote like us, dress like us, and so on. Uh, this passage is often used to justify what I call an against-the-world faith, where we're defined by what we're against as opposed to, to what we're for. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word, and then we're going to get right into it. And I'm going to share what I've discovered this week and what I think may be God's Word to us uh, today. What's amazing to me is this passage that I have avoided and felt uncomfortable with for a long time, I was very surprised that in the middle of it, as I began to dig into it, I found the heart of the gospel. Okay, here's the word. James 4, verse 4. He writes here, You adulterous people. Welcome to Middletown Christian Church. <laughs> what, a, what a boy. You know, he, James obviously never attended uh, Dale Carnegie's class, How to Win Friends and Influence People. If he went to the church growth seminar, you know, he probably flunked. You don't grow a church by beginning the text, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with God, friendship with the world, means enmity against God. The word enmity is a great word. word it means hostility. Now, let's pause here for a minute. I want to read a couple things to you uh, from the Old Testament. When we read this word about adultery, it's confusing to us because we think that he's talking about what happens when uh, people sleep with people they're not married to. We think it's uh, physical but it's not. It's spiritual adultery, as he says here. And you go back to the Old Testament to understand this, okay? In the beginning of the Ten Commandments, this is what God says. You should not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven or above. You should not bow down to them or worship them, for the I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And what he's saying at the beginning of the Ten Commandments is, is I don't want to share your heart with anybody. I want your total allegiance. If you then turn over to the book of Isaiah, you'll find a very familiar theme then that's very common understanding among the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, For your God is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And frequently in the Old Testament scriptures, we hear that God is this jealous God who wants our total affection. And that God is like the husband. 
Israel is like the bride. Well, what happened is when they began to occupy the land of Israel, Palestine, there were all these other gods that the people of Israel had the opportunity to worship. And what would happen is these Jewish families would worship God, but at the same time worship the gods of the land. And so the prophets, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets would keep saying to them, God wants to be your only God, don't worship the other gods. And then you would hear this language then in other places. In Jeremiah, basically, in Jeremiah, he says this. The Lord said to me in the days of King of Josiah, have you seen what she did? Now he's talking about Israel. That faithless one Israel, how she went up on the empty high hill and under every green tree and played the whore there. Welcome to church, right? What, what's going on here is the prophets are saying to the people of Israel, God is your God. God has rescued you from slavery. God wants your heart. God doesn't want to share you with anyone else. And then the prophets say, but you have gone chasing after other lovers. You understand where this is coming from now? So what he's saying here in the beginning of this text in James is he's saying to the people of God, he's talking to Christian people, he's saying to them, you adulterous people, God has delivered you and saved you from a life of sin. God has called you out of the world, and you're trying to live with your feet in both worlds. You, you, you are giving up your heart to another. That's what he's saying here. He goes on and then says, that friendship then with the world means enmity against the God. You are being unfaithful. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Again, hard words. Or do you think Scripture says that without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? What he's saying here then, he's saying that God wants to live in you. God doesn't want to share his heart with anyone else but you. God wants you to open up your heart completely to him, to allow him to be the one that directs the course of your life. That's what James is saying. Then he says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the reading of the word. God's people did say, aren't you glad you came? All right. Okay, so let's talk about this. Now, when I became a Christian, when I really understood who Jesus was, I was in high school. And I became a Christian. I was baptized. And I didn't become a Christian because I thought I was going to go to hell. That wasn't why I became a Christian. And I didn't become a Christian because I was lost. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, oh, you know, that saved a wretch like me. I didn't feel like a wretch. I mean, how much of a wretch can you be at 13 or 14? Right. I didn't feel like a wretch. In fact, nobody in my church had ever called me a wretch. I, that was unfamiliar language to me. So I didn't become a Christian because I was lost and needed to be found. I didn't become a Christian because I'd been broken in some way by life. I, I didn't become a Christian because I was empty and I needed to be filled. Those are all good reasons to become a Christian. All, nothing wrong with those. 
The reason David Emery got down on his knees and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and accepted him as my Lord and Savior was because of this one verse. For God so loved the world that he did not call his Son in the world to condemn it, but to give it the gift of eternal life. What I was overwhelmed with was his love and by who he was, who Jesus was. That Jesus was a person who could see good in all people. That he did not label people. That he could see good in the world around him. And the church that I grew up in, United Memorial Christian Church in Euless, Texas, was that kind of good news church. Uh, we believed and we were taught that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it all and called it good. And that God's intention was for us to live in the world meaningfully, to do love and to be loving people. But as I became a Christian and began to involve myself in Christian culture, expose myself to Christianity, and was, I was all in, over a period of time I began to believe and to learn that to be a Christian meant that we were supposed to be against things. You know, God doesn't want you to read Harry Potter. It wasn't Harry Potter then, I was too young. I'm too, I'm too old for that, but I mean it was something like that. God doesn't want you to watch movies. God doesn't want you to go swimming in mixed company. You know, God only wants you to listen to Christian music. Uh, God doesn't want you to associate with certain kinds of people. You know, it became an against kind of faith. And for me, as I, as, I, as I grew in my Christian faith, or you might say shrunk in my Christian faith, Christianity became to be defined by what I was against as opposed to what I was for. Now, if you ask a lot of people in the world, you ask them and you say, uh, who are not a part of the church, they will define Christianity as what Christians are against rather than what they're for. We're considered an against-the-world religion as opposed to a for-the-world religion, Right? We know that. That's what we hear. And when you read a passage like this in James, it seems to affirm that. The world's a bad place. Separate yourself from it. It reminds me of a fourth century saint by the name of Simon Stylites. Maybe you've never heard of Simon. But Simon was born in the fourth century in Aleppo, Syria, near Aleppo, Syria. And when he was 13 years old, he became a Christian. He then joined a monastery. At some point in the monastery, uh, he decided that he wanted to completely flee the world, and so he built a tower that looked like this. 60 feet high stone pillar, and he went to live on top of this pillar, and he lived there for 37 years. True story. You can't make this stuff up. How did he eat? He had a little rope attached to a basket. And uh, the basket would be lowered up and down and people would bring him offerings. He had separated himself from the world. And then, and then they built a, a chapel, a, a sanctuary, a church around the site where he lived to honor his life. And you can go there today and you can find the remains of the pillar with a rock sitting on top of it. 
But to now, in Syria, this is a, 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 deserted, a deserted Christian community, and it is a building that is now a relic. Uh, by the way, James would say, fittingly so. Any Christian faith that does not live in the real world, that doesn't demonstrate faith, is worthless and useless, according to the book of James. But it's this kind of mentality that has infected Christian, Christ, the Christian community for centuries. That we are to remove ourselves from the world. And it's what allowed churches all over the South during the Civil Rights Movement for people to stick their head in the sands, in the sand, and to completely ignore what was going on in the world around them and to say, hey, you know, the church is a spiritual place. We're not supposed to talk about politics. We're not supposed to talk about race. We're, not, we're just supposed to go here and worship Jesus and praise Jesus. Well, you know what? That's Simon Stylite's faith. Up on a pillar, ignoring everything going on in the world around us. Now, the reason this passage has always bothered me is because it seems to affirm this, this way of thinking. But it's more complicated than that. You've heard me say that before. It's much more complicated than that. Let me tell you then what this means. So when he uses the word friend here, it's a Greek word. And the Greek word means strong affection for. It's philio. I mean, strong affection, connection, a bond, a bond. Such a tight bond that we feel obligated to something or someone. It's also the same word in Greek that's used for kiss. A variation is the word kiss. When Judas kisses Jesus, it's the same word. So what he's saying here, he is saying... That a person who has friendship with the world is someone who kisses up to it. It's someone who gives their heart to the world. Now the word world there is the word in Greek, cosmos. And it's not talking about the physical world we live in, because the physical world we live in is the Greek word gaia. Okay? So when he uses the word cosmos, let me tell you what he means. He's not saying the world is a bad place. He's talking about the system of the world, how the world operates, the values of the world, how we operate and how we live and how we treat one another as human beings. He's talking about sin-infected systems where people in power marginalize poor people, where people label other people, where people use their power and influence to step on top of other people to get to the top. The world system, all the isms, racism, all those kinds of things. He's talking about the world's system. And so when he says, kissing up to the world, he's talking about kissing up to the way the real world operates. Okay? That's what friendship with the world means. He's not saying the world's a bad place. No, he's not. He's talking about the system. And he doesn't say that God makes you an enemy. He says when we live by the world's system and the way the world operates, that we live 
in enmity with God, meaning we are hostile to what God is doing. God is at work in the world on behalf of the poor, hearing the cries of the poor. God is at work in the world bringing goodness and love to the lonely. God is at work in the world bringing compassion and mercy and grace everywhere. We see who Jesus was, tearing down walls, removing barriers, healing the sick, touching the dead. When we work in opposition to that, we become an enemy of God and a friend of the world. And when we see the good and we don't do it. Later in the book he says, it is sin to see good and that we need to do. It's called the sin of omission. And then we don't do it and we're just silent. We sit in our church and we pretend like everything's okay. And we just talk about spiritual things that have no relevance for the world around us. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that when we do that, we constitute ourselves as an enemy of God. Now, here's the powerful thing then about this book. Powerful. Now, that's all real abstract. Now I'm going to show you what it means. When you look in the book of James, James talks about what it means to be a friend of God. It's all in the book. What is the book about? It's about real life, everyday life, how you use your mouth, how you talk to other people. How do people in the system of the world talk to other people? They use, it, use their mouth to create fear and anxiety, to divide, to hate, to tear people down. And James in this book says that's the, the world's way, but in God's way, to be a friend of God means to use their, your words to bless others, to speak life, and to create. So all the things, this, this particular verse is the key to unlocking the whole book because it shows us what friendship with God looks like. Interestingly enough, I went back and reread through the, can you tell I'm excited about this? I am, because it, the whole book of James now becomes this great book that I didn't see before. James calls Abraham a friend of God. Why? Because when Abraham heard the word of God spoken to him, he acted on it. He put his faith in practice. You see, Abraham was an old man, and God came to him and said, Abraham, you and your wife are going to have a baby, and you're going to go to a new land, and your, your children are going to be, the descendants are going to be a blessing to the whole creation, and I'm calling you to move to some new place. Abraham had no idea where he was going, any idea how it was going to happen. But you know what Abraham did? He took a step out, believing that God had a plan for his life and for the world, and he was going to be a part of it. And because of that, he was called a friend of God. And so to be a friend of the world then, to be an enemy of God, is to believe that this world is doomed and condemned and worthless, and to want to flee it, and to live in despair, and fear, and, and uh, cynicism, and to just participate in the negative division, and hateful language, and fearful language that's going on in our world every single day, is to believe it, to live it, and to just soak in it. But to be a friend of God is to believe that God has a future for the world and that our lives are a part of it and that we're going to take a step into it not knowing where it's going to lead us. Oh, there's a great prayer that was prayed by uh, Thomas Merton called the Prayer of Great 
unknowing. Maybe you're familiar with it. But I love this prayer. He says, my Lord, God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm not actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will ever, never lead me to face my perils alone. See what he's saying here? It's the, it's the prayer of Abraham, you know. God, I know you have something, and I don't know exactly where I'm going, but I'm just trusting that you're going to lead me, and I'm just going to take a step and put my hope and faith in you. That's what it means to be a friend of God. Uh, let's go a little bit more. Let's go a little deeper. The whole book unlocks with this one particular passage. Look at verse 13. I'm going to put it up here for you. And this gets real specific about what a friend of God is and a friend of the world is. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. He's saying here, your life and how you actually live every day in the world shows where your heart is, who your heart belongs to. Does your heart belong to God or have you given your heart to another lover? How you actually live every day in the world demonstrates your allegiance. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly. This is the system we're talking, world systems. Unspiritual and devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Now, how hard is that? Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. That's what it, friend of God, friend of the world. Let me give you another example. In this book, you know what he talks about? He talks about how we care for the vulnerable. Friends of God care for the vulnerable. Religion that is pure and beautiful cares and takes care of widows and orphans. Now, you really want to get into what's happening in the world today and you don't think the Bible's relevant? Read what he says in chapter 5 about people who mow our grass who are foreigners, who put roofs on our buildings. They're not paid a fair wage. It's right here, chapter 5. He says, you people who have a lot of money and you hire people to come and work for you and then you defraud them and you don't pay them a living wage what they deserve. He has, un he has unkind words to say about that. He's talking about vulnerable people. It's a total misunderstanding of the book of James to believe that friendship with the world means that we're supposed to separate ourselves from it, hide in a sanctuary, ignore the pain in the world, and not being involved with it. Friends of God are people who give their whole heart and life to the values of the kingdom of God as seen in Jesus and then do their very best to live it every day in the world 
and live it and put their hope and trust in it. That's it. Now I hear that, and then I go, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Because I've given my heart to another lover. We all have. Right? Anybody here playing the world's game? We all are, right? I look at my heart, and I see that it, it's, it, it's a friend of God, it's a friend of the world. I can point out a lot of examples. And you read that and you go, oh no, what, what will I do? But here's the gospel. The beautiful, profound gospel of Jesus. He says, but he gives all the more grace. He doesn't withhold it. He doesn't give us a little bit of it. In spite of all that, God just keeps giving grace. And giving grace. Calling us unto himself. Believing in us. Trusting in us. The same people that he calls adulterers. He gives us grace. That is just so, I mean, that is why I became a Christian. Not because I wanted to leave a bad world, but because I wanted to be a part of the good world that God had in mind for us and for all people. The world that God created and called good. But that's been destroyed and beaten and broken by our own selfishness and envy and our ambition. And you know what? God just pours that grace out every day. When you got up this morning, you know what? Grace was given to you with a sunshiny day all through creation in the world we live. Every day in nature, God brings his grace to the beautiful things that we see every day in the world. God just keeps showing up every day in the beautiful created world around us. The world is good, the sun, the stars, the moon, the sky, the green grass, the beautiful water. All those things are things that God has created. Every time you, somebody buys you a cup of coffee, a complete stranger buys you a cup of coffee, grace is being given to you. Every kindness, every act is an act of grace unto you. Do you remember what happened um, four years ago? Four years ago on the 15th of June. Four years ago at Mother Emanuel Church, Dylan Roof walked into this building to a Bible study on a Wednesday evening, pulled out a gun and murdered these nine Beautiful people. And then how did Mother Emanuel Church respond? The families of these nine people stood up in court and told them that they had forgiven him. Grace. That's being a friend of God. A few days after Easter this year, I got this card in the mail. And I didn't know who sent it to me. I, I opened it up quickly, and it said, I started to send you this card for no special occasion. It's got a little bear on the front of it. And it says, but thinking of you, made it one. I had no reason to give you a card, but think of you, made it one. 
And then all on the inside of the card, it says, we appreciate you, we love you, we're praying for you, we're praying for a peaceful future. And then I go, what is this? This crime is a lesson to make us stronger and should stand together. And then I read, we are so sorry to hear the news in Sri Lanka. What's he talking about? And then I remember, on Easter Sunday, there was a terrorist attack in Sri Lanka that had killed 207 innocent people. The majority of them were Christians. You know, Easter came and went, and I don't remember if we recognized it or remembered it or not on Easter Sunday, but we went about our own business. And then a few days later, I got this card, and I thought, where's it from? Who gave it to us? And I start reading these names. Tala, Syed, Tasim, Jabbar. And then I took the envelope and I looked on the envelope and it came from the Muslim Community Center in Louisville, addressed to me. Grace, given so generously. I hadn't even thought much about it. And then grace came. Here's what he goes on, then he says. He said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Surrender yourselves, therefore, to God. And then the rest of that chapter we talked about last week is how we surrender. Resist the darkness, resist the evil, resist the devil. Wash your hands of this world system, of your ambition, your anxiety, and your fear, and your hate. Wash yourselves of it. Give your heart and mind unto God. Surrender yourselves to God. And humble yourselves. It's a prayer of confession. He's saying, Christian people, bow before God and confess the part that you've had in making the world a dark place. Confess that you have fallen into the world system. Confess and feel sorrow and brokenhearted and lament about the world that we are living in. Feel sorrow and lament for it. And then humble yourselves before God and surrender yourselves to who God is and to affirm Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and your Creator and be His disciple. Live for Him in this world. Live for His truth. Live for His grace. Be peacemakers. Be gentle people. People who are willing to yield. Well, that's what I found out this week as I dug up in the text. It's all right there, the gospel of Jesus.